the governor takes a victory lap. This is about power. This is about control. Signs the bills with a side of snark. Brandon, Florida is a great American city. GOP lawmakers made it happen. To make sure that the employees have the option to take the vaccine if they so choose to. And if they don't, that their employment is not at risk. But not without a fight. This is all very confusing and expensive. We had issues going into the pandemic, and the pandemic only exacerbated. New mayor, familiar issues. Affordability and housing, it's getting harder and harder. Broward's new beginnings. Giving thanks and giving food. It's all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg, and we begin with new COVID vaccine laws and new questions. This week, the Republican-led Florida legislature handed the governor his wish list of bills preventing mandated vaccines for work and school in a session watched nationally. One side called it necessary to fight federal overreach, and the other side called it political theater. Governor Ron DeSantis is now formally a candidate for re-election, and the session had barely ended when he was out on the campaign trail to sign those new bills and take a victory lap in Brandon, Florida, a place he clearly chose because Brandon is part of a conservative chant that insults President Biden. We get into all the details today with two South Florida lawmakers from the front lines. State Rep Daniel Perez, a Republican from Southwest Miami-Dade, and State Senator Jason Pizzo, Democrat from Northeast Miami-Dade. Great to have you with us both uh, after being in Tallahassee all week. Well, I was there all week. You cut out on Wednesday. Great Good to morning. see you both. <laughs> We're so glad to see you. Uh, Representative Perez, let me begin sort of let's cut to the chase right away. One of these bills says that government at every level cannot uh, require vaccine vaccinations of its employees, of its workers. And this is really aimed, I think you would say, at uh, police officers and firefighters. I think the question is, and many of them have voluntarily gotten vaccinated, some simply refuse to, why should they get a pass and not be vaccinated when the people with whom they interact may already be vaccinated? Yeah, we, uh, and you brought up an important uh, point there, Michael. We are encouraging people to get vaccinated uh, and these bills have nothing to do with that. Uh, encouraging those encouraging words that the governor has continued to to say uh, but when we're talking about the first responders i think you have to encompass everyone the point of the bills this last week was to make sure that there was no overreach as you guys mentioned when you opened the show and allowed people to make a decision for themselves and within those decisions we obviously have different variety of opt-outs um, based on medical exemptions and pregnancies and those kinds of things but it wasn't just for the first responders it's across the board we want to make sure that people have the freedom and the free choice to decide if they want to receive a vaccine or not, but not through the mandate of their employer. Jason, you uh, had a lot of questions during the process. The bill process went as it always does, debate, floor debate, possible amendments. Uh, Democrats offered a lot of amendments, hoping to make it more palatable for them. Um, none of them not only were accepted, was accepted, but none was really heard very much, not within the scope we kept hearing. What do you make of that? I think the uh, Republicans, uh, in a sort of strange bit of sympathy I have for the, for the other side of the aisle, uh, they were basically uh, 
directed to draft something that encapsulated the platitudes made by the governor. Uh, and Rep. Perez, who's a, a good friend of mine, um, speaks to the idea of, uh, and you as well, when we're talking about first responders, these bills were about private employers. And when the governor, you know, laments the overreach of the federal government, uh, it's it's more characteristic of overreach if you're singling out smaller companies. And what I mean by that is the federal mandate spoke nothing of companies over 100 employees. Uh, Florida legislation that, that was passed this past week actually singled out and went after small small businesses under 100 employees. Yeah. Uh, Senator Pizzo, uh, let's talk about businesses. Uh, just over the weekend, I believe Friday afternoon, in fact, uh, uh, the Disney company said it was going to pause its requirements that all its employees be vaccinated. Most of them, more than 90% already have been. And the cruise lines, of course, require passengers and all their uh, employees to be vaccinated to go off on a cruise. So what is the future there? What is going to happen both with private business uh, that may want to vaccinate and the cruise lines? We spoke about this um, several months ago, Michael, you, Glenn, and I did uh, on a prior appearance. And it's just the irony that uh, the Republican majority, both in the House and the Senate and the executive branch, uh, are not allowing businesses really to have their own reliance, to dictate their own terms, to, to run their business. And it is, and not to be flippant, it is indicative of having a governor who has never made a payroll, who has never had to make decisions about employees and management. Uh, and has always sort of, with the exception of, I think, a brief stint at a private boarding school in Georgia, again, has never made a payroll, has never signed the front of a paycheck. And so it's it, the irony of, of this past week, which I think effectually does absolutely nothing. Uh, it was all grandstanding. Nothing's coming out of these bills. We had, we had four bills. One was to develop a state OSHA program. It's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Uh, it's adding regulation for a governor who ran on deregulation. It's a slush fund of $5 million in one bill, a million for another with no deadline, scope, terms, nothing. All right, well, uh, let, let's, I'm, I, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, but sure. I, I want to let Daniel Perez get in here uh, just for a minute because you're, you're citing some of the details of the bill. Uh, I know that there are a lot of people in this state who really do believe in what they call choice, and, and these bills are, the headline is that this is what it provides. So, Daniel Perez, the, the scope of the bill is not a ban. It's not. It has exceptions for businesses. Mm -hmm. It has medical and religious exemptions. It also has opt-outs if an employee will agree to regular testing or masking. What then is different from the federal mandate where a lot of these same sort of exemptions exist already? Well, we, we took it a step further um, in this bill in comparison to the federal bill. We did allow for the protective equipment to be worn by the employee, which must be purchased by the employer. We allowed for testing, antibody testing, and the religious exemptions that are going to be forms that are put through the Department of Health of the state of Florida. What's happening is that with a lot of those exemptions on a federal level, uh, there's a lot of discrepancy. There's a lot of subjective ideologies on what is or is not an exemption. And we've maybe made that more concrete here in the state of Florida to make sure uh, that if you did abide by one of those exemptions, that everything was uniform and not subjective. So but, me, but, I'm sorry, sure. I just want to, uh, religious exemptions. Um, I want to bring up a, a letter that you're about to send to the Archdiocese of Miami, which uh, whose schools do have a mask mandate currently. You, you are a fine product of Catholic schools in South Florida. Um, would this come under some sort of religious exemption sort of in, in total as it is the archdiocese? 
Well, the Archdiocese of Miami uh, would not be able to file for a religious exemption for each of those children that they have in their schools. Mm. The, the parents themselves are the ones that would file the religious exemption on behalf of their child, if they so choose to. The same way as if they chose for their child to wear a mask in these Catholic schools, they'd be able to do so. But to have a, a, a five-year-old or six-year-old or seven-year-old to, to wear masks when, let's say, they have the antibodies um, you know, from, from a year ago, uh, well, that wouldn't qualify for them to be able to take off their mask during school. And if we're looking at what the public schools are doing here, which the archdiocese wholly abides by for hurricanes, for any sort of emergency, all of a sudden they've gone a different direction. And you can't pick and choose when you want to be an ally of the state or an ally of the public school system and when you're not. And that's exactly what the archdiocese is doing with, with their children right now. And I'm very interested, and I'm, I am sending a letter tomorrow Glenda, to make sure that they, they reconsider their decision. Uh, and it's not just a, a decision that I'm encouraging, but one that many parents in the Catholic school system are asking for, for the archdiocese to do, which is give the parents the choice to choose if they want their child to wear a mask or not. The same way they can choose if their child's going to get vaccinated or not. I don't understand how you can have it two different ways. Yeah, and we know now that uh, students in Miami-Dade and Broward, parents have a right to choose whether their children will wear masks to school or not. It's optional. Uh, Jason Peso, one of the other exemptions that was written into this law for people who don't want to get vaccinated was an, quote, anticipated pregnancy. Boy, if there were ever kind of a, a, a curious phrase to be in the laws of the state of Florida, uh, what is that? I mean, conceivably, that could mean any woman of childbearing age could simply say, I'm thinking about having a baby and I don't want to get vaccinated. Michael, one of the biggest issues aside from uh, the, the pots of money that are that, that are not attendant to any sort of cost, whatever. And I realize I, I'm, I'm an attorney in this situation. So, you know, it's simple contract law. You would not let a client enter into a contract where a material term is not defined. And there are a couple. Immunity is not defined. Uh, Senator Burgess said we'll leave it to the experts to determine what that means, as well as anticipated pregnancy. One of the sort of, you know, jokes and you, you get in a in law school is about the fertile octogenarian. I mean, <laughs> when does it start and when does it end? Uh, and so these are, these are, you know, t undefined material terms that had to be voted on, the bill had to be voted on, signed into law, and then gave leave to the Department of Health 15 days to go ahead and define. I, you would never expose yourself uh, to lean on something that's undefined, that's material in a contract. This is ridiculous. So one of the biggest questions, I think, for a lot of employers, especially those who get state money and federal money, is the state law and the federal law are, seems to clash in a lot mm -hmm. of different ways now. And so, Daniel Perez, what for, especially for something like hospitals or healthcare, uh, schools, I guess, would fall into this, get federal money, get state money. What do these entities do? What do they follow? Well, that's the decision for them to make, but I, I can tell you what, what, we're, what we're stating uh, in the House and in the Senate, at least the majority and those that voted for this, uh, for these group of bills, it's if you are in the state of Florida, you have to abide by the state laws that we just passed. And if they believe that there is some sort of discrepancy or there is some sort of standing that they have for a separate issue between state and federal government, that is on that entity. But we, we do not encourage that they go down that rabbit hole. Uh, we encourage that they abide by the laws that we just passed uh, here last week. Um, I've heard that, that, that argument Glenna, but um, it, it's very it's very specific in the in the laws that we passed here in Florida uh, to make sure that if they're residing here, 
uh, and they have their they have their business here, and they have employees within the state of Florida that they abide by we pass that they abide by what we pass, regardless of what is uh, of of what other requirements they have. All right, but, uh, if, uh, gentlemen, if, uh, if I, Jason, yeah. hold, uh, I'm, sure. I beg your pardon. Hold on just a minute. We'll give you a chance to respond. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. back with state rep daniel perez and state senator jason pizzo speaking of florida's new vaccine laws uh, the question on the table uh jason pizzo to you was uh daniel perez already answered what is a an entity to do if it gets federal money and state money and has federal law and state law colliding what happens um he's answered and i know you wanted to answer but we do need to take commercial breaks so here you go what do you think so a, a couple of things. One is, uh, again, this is an attack on small business. I want to be very clear. The federal mandate that, that OSHA was looking to promulgate did not speak to any businesses under 100 employees. So when Representative Perez says that they went a step further, they did. They went ahead and singled out small businesses. And then the question, you know, when, when he said in response, let's not go down that rabbit hole. No, there are clear situations when there is superseding federal law especially if you have nursing homes that are receiving Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements, those are gonna be in conflict. If you have subcontractors that do federal work, are they supposed to abide and, and conform with, with the federal rule or not? But again, this rabbit hole, so to speak, was created by the Republicans. Okay, I'm worried at this point, not about the pop and circumstance that we have in Tallahassee, which is basically, you know, kowtowing to the narrative and directive of the governor. I'm worried about my barber. I'm worried about my dentist. I'm worried about the shoe cobbler up in Aventura who, who, who repairs my shoes, you know, and, and that's what I'm worried about. And that the federal government was silent and left those people alone. It's the Republicans in Florida who singled them out and looks so heavy fines against them. What, what concern do you have for your barber? I'm not understanding. Well, your, your barber's still going to be able to function. He can still open his shop. He can still get vaccinated if he chooses to. He can still service his customers. He can have his mask on. What concerns you about the barber? Well, so my 70, my 70 year old barber is now supposed to delineate, wait for the Department of Health to promulgate forms on anticipated pregnancy and get into the invasive discussion on exemptions with, with, with a female employee about what her anticipated pregnancy is. That's not of his business. It's not of her business. He should be able to run his business, have reliance on which law he's supposed to follow and be in compliance and have reliance. This is truly small business and we, we single them out. We should have just left them alone. The, well, the bar yeah, go ahead, Michael. Well, I was going to say, yes, there is a $10,000 fine for any small business, according to these new laws, that does not adhere to the law. And that brings me to the question, Dan Perez, of enforcement. Uh, the legislature, in writing these laws, gave Attorney General Ashley Moody $5 million to enforce them. But there really are no enforcement rules. I mean, how is she supposed to spend this money and who does she, who is she accountable to? Yeah, so let's. I, I want to talk about the money because it's come up a couple times. There were two different pots of money that we put into into this bill. One was for one million dollars, which was one of the governor's office in order for them to create the new set of standards through OSHA as we withdraw from OSHA, which is a federal guideline. The reason we're withdrawing from OSHA is because of the overreach that's happened with the federal government, and us in Florida want to come up with a set of standards which have to be equal to or more stringent than the federal. Uh, standards of OSHA in order to come up with our own guidelines. For that, we gave a million dollars. And on that, there is a deadline and there is a timeline. There's a check-in. This is not a, a, an endless amount of time. 
by mid-January of 22, we have to have an update from the governor's office on where they are in creating those standards. So there are check-ins and guidelines in order to make sure that the money's being used and it's being used effectively. There is accountability, as opposed to many people saying there's not, and it's just a free blank check. It yeah. is not. Dan Perez, if, if I can just jump in here, according to a story I read in the New York Times this week, if a state, and I believe there are 11 other states that have their own uh, similar agencies to OSHA, when they create those agencies, they have to follow the same rules and regulations that OSHA imposes. So what's the difference if the state of Florida does it uh, as opposed to the federal agency? No, not, not necessarily. If, if, if the actual procedure of the state of Florida pulling out of OSHA, which, by the way, doesn't just entail coming up with a set of standards that are equal to or greater than on the stringency call, uh, side of things in comparison to OSHA, but it then needs to get approved by the federal government. So the federal government, which could be President Biden, it could be uh, another president, whoever's after President Biden, assuming he doesn't run for re-election, which is a completely different conversation, uh, assuming that 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 the that Florida does get to that part where we have to ask for regulation from the or acceptance from the federal government, they would have to approve our standards. Jason Pizzo, let me ask you a little bit about process that a lot of people who were not there watching didn't see this. Of the four bills, there was only one bill because of the numbers of Democrats and Republicans in the state legislature. One of the bills, the Democrats did have the power to kill. Uh, the one that needed a supermajority vote, they needed a handful of Democrats to go along with a public records exemption that would shield the ID of any companies who were facing consequences, who were reported, the employers who might have reported them. Um, that, if you're a Democrat, would probably be a, a no-brainer if you really wanted to make a difference. But a handful of Democrats defected. Some, a uh, couple, did not vote at all. Um, what do you make of that? Your, your counterpart in the Senate, Perry Thurston of Fort Lauderdale, was furious at his colleagues. Are you? I'm not furious because it was, um, and I voted no on all four bills because to be consistent, to think this was, the whole thing was a charade. The reason why I'm, I'm not being critical of my, my Democratic colleagues, it does require a two-thirds vote uh, on a public exemption because we're, we believe in, in transparency and sunshine here. So it's an extraordinary measure. The reason I'm not is because we're, we were sort of fixated on trying just to kill a bill for the sake of killing a bill. But the under, and we spoke about this when you were in Tallahassee, uh, to be clear, we're talking about shielding the names of companies who would be under investigation because they are pushing uh, and, and enforcing a vaccine mandate, which is sort of a democratic value, not, not, not a, a mandate, so to speak, but certainly encouraging vaccines. So we would be trying to un unveil uh, the, the names and identities of, of corporations in Florida that were actually trying to vaccinate their employees. So it, it was, I'm, I'm not, you know, criticizing and I'm, I'm certainly not uh, uh, lambasting any of my, my colleagues for voting the way they did. One of them was on the floor and did not vote. That's a violation of Senate rules. What happens then? Uh, that's if it gets referred to the president, if somebody uh, files a complaint. But again, you know, they're, um, I, I can't really be critical. It's, it's, it's one of the, of the four bills. It actually had the most legitimacy in the sense that you have somebody who does have a sincerely held belief uh, and their identity is kept private, not just a corporation, or they have a medical uh, condition that they, they file for, that, that should not be made public. And, and I don't disagree with that in, in spirit. Uh, so if we have a bad bill that's going to pass because if the trains already left the station, it did, it did have some legitimate protective language 
again, I could have gone either way. And, and I think I spoke the most about it in questions and debate on the floor uh, as, as to one that was most palatable. But again, I'm, I'm not just because of partisanship, I'm just not critical uh, of my colleagues in this situation because again, we're talking about keeping private the names of companies that are actually looking to vaccinate their employees. Okay, you're cutting them some slack. That is your right. Uh, Dan Perez, let me, let me ask you, go back to an issue. I think it's certainly one of the most important uh, impacts of these new laws. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, has issued a rule, promulgated a rule, that says, I believe, starting in January, any healthcare facility that gets uh, federal money for Medicaid, Medicare, uh, that its employees all must be vaccinated with the exception of medical and religious reasons. Uh, where's, I mean, in Florida, we're talking about thousands of people uh, in a uh, health profession where we can't lose nurses and respiratory therapists and so on. Where, what, what's the resolution here? I don't expect us to lose uh, nurses or healthcare employees. And I agree with you, Michael. I mean, they're, they're one of the most important industries we have in this state. They're necessary. Um, and I, I would tell them, I would tell them all to abide by the state law. If they believe that they want to opt out of the state law because of, a, of an, an exemption, a religious exemption, medical exemption, then they can do so through the Department of Health the way that we have allowed them to do through this bill. But I would encourage all of them to abide by the state law. Daniel Perez, Jason Pizzo, two of South Florida's all-star lawmakers. Great to have you with us today. <laughs> Thanks, gentlemen. Great Thank discussion. All right, Broward County has a new mayor. Michael Udine is here live with what he has in store next. Broward County got a new mayor this week, Michael Udine. Voters elected him to the commission. Commissioners elected him to serve a term as mayor. Michael Udine joins us with his first few days under the belt. Mr. Mayor, good morning to you. <laughs> good morning. Thank you guys for having me. I wish I could be there live with you today. Yes. Well, you're live, as it were, virtually <laughs> next time soon in the studio. Uh, Mr. Mayor, uh, for the next year, you will be the public face of Broward County. You've got a bully pulpit to send out a strong message. Uh, tell us what your message is going to be. I think this next year is going to be very much a transitional year for Broward County and, and all the municipalities and, you know, a lot of our local, you know, businesses. First, from a Broward County perspective, during the year we will get two new commissioners appointed over the next few weeks by Governor DeSantis. Uh, in response to the congressional election in which we had two commissioners, longtime commissioners that had to leave. Our uh, very well-respected county administrator will leave in the next few months as we transition into a new county administration um, due, you know, due to her retirement. And you know, most importantly, we will transition hopefully out of the pandemic part of the of COVID into more, more of a endemic and learning to live with it type of phase. And I think that's going to raise a lot of uh, challenges uh, and opportunities all the way around. And I look forward to working with all of our stakeholders, our, our municipalities, uh, our, our business community, to make sure that we are doing what we can to come out on the other side in a positive fashion. So the first request that you made upon becoming mayor to the administration 
was to develop a plan to end the mask mandate in county buildings. What was behind that? Did that have anything to do with the new Florida law? Well, what, we're, what we were seeing is um, this was getting to be very confusing to a lot of people. Uh, this was getting to be the type of thing where we would see people wearing masks sometimes and not wearing masks other times. And my feeling is people have to do what they personally feel makes them safe. They need to, you know, deal with their own health issues and their own um, um, how they feel about this in the way that suits them best. And I just think that we're going to have to learn how to live with the fact that there is going to be some levels of this throughout society. And I think that this is a first step towards doing it. Most of the businesses are already stopping, you know, the masking requirements. And I think it should be more of an optional type of thing for people that feel the need to do so. Yeah. Mr. Mayor, you just mentioned a second ago something really important, which is that two commissioners are going to be appointed by the governor. The governor, of course, is a conservative Republican. Broward County is the most Democratic county in the state. Do you and your fellow commissioners have any say? Can you recommend people to him or how does this work? Is it solely up to him? It's a decision that will be made by the governor. Um, it is not a decision that the county commission or county voters have any say on right now. Um, the governor will make his decision and we will have two new members of the county commission. And I'm hopeful that the nine of us can collegially work together to move Broward County forward in a positive manner. Like I said, we're going to have some challenges. I mean, Bertha Henry has been uh, one of the best county administrators and has been here for a long time. She's retiring through the DROP program, so we'll have a new county administration coming in. Um, we're going to have coming out the other side of the pandemic, and I think we're all going to need to put our best foot forward and work together. You know, while we're on this subject, um, at the state level, because of the resign to run law, there's going to be a, a significant chunk of Broward next year whose residents do not have state representation for a time uh, because both Senator Perry Thurston and Representative Bobby DuBose, who sort of overlap state districts, they both had a resign to run. There will not be an election in time for the state mm -hmm. legislative session. Is that problematic to you? Um, I think it's problematic whenever people don't have a voice to represent them in government. One of the things that I've tried to preach and have been very open and active with is, is transparency. Um, I think that, that citizens and, and members of the public should be able to redress their government, should be able to meet with them, and should have a say in how they're governed. So yes, anytime that someone is not being properly represented, either through a special election or a vacancy, I consider that to be problematic. So I think that will mean that the people that are there will have to work extra hard uh, to make sure that we're getting our voice heard in Tallahassee. Yeah, uh, Michael, um, I personally have high regard for Bertha Henry. I think she is a really extraordinarily capable uh, public uh, administrator. So wish her well in her retirement or in the drop program. Uh, how are you going to find a new administrator? Will there be a nationwide search? How are you going to do it? We've selected Monica Sapero, the deputy administrator. That was a selection that was made about four or five months ago. So we benefited the same way that many private corporations would benefit is that we had a very capable number two 
Um, that person had been uh, working in government for many years. She's very well respected by the community, by all the stakeholders. And we were able to come to an agreement where she will be taking over March 1st. And in the interim, it's almost like we're getting on-the-job leadership training by one of the most well-respected, as you say, county administrators in the nation. So uh, I'm very positive on what will move forward. I think that Monica is gonna do a fantastic job taking over for Bertha Henry. And I think that we have an incredibly talented county commission that will assist uh, and that will move policy forward to make sure that our Broward residents and visitors and businesses um, uh, can move forward in a positive fashion. New, ma new mayoral PSA. Sit tight. We're <laughs> going to take a, a quick break. We'll be right back with Broward's new mayor when we come back. We're glad you are with us on this Sunday, speaking with the new Broward Mayor, Michael Udine. Uh, uh, Michael, let me ask you, you are a member of the Broward Canvassing Board, uh, one of the three members of the board. Uh, Glenna and I both were there on various days, saw you and the two other board members looking at ballots in that 20th Congressional District race. Uh, as far as we could see, uh, it was extremely well done, it was efficient, uh, it was honest, uh, and, and no questions were raised really, I think, about any kind of fraudulent uh, votes being cast. But the governor is creating a new kind of law enforcement agency to look into election fraud. Now, we know of one case, Glenna, in fact, broke the story about a state Senate race down in South Miami-Dade where there was allegedly election fraud. But what about in Broward? I, I mean, I don't see any evidence of election fraud there, do you? I've been serving on the canvassing board for the last you know, few elections since the, the gubernatorial election almost four years ago. And I have seen very well run, very fair elections. Um, and personally, I've been looking to see if there were anything that looked like an impropriety. And, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to serve on the canvassing board, because I wanted to be the voice of the people that are sending their ballots in to make sure that they're being appropriately counted. And from what I've seen is a very professional elections office. They are trying to count every lawfully cast ballot, and they are doing a good job in weeding out any kind of issues. And there are already, there are always some little issues. And I think that there's been, uh, it, it, it's, oh, it's been 100%. I think it's been very positive. And I've been very impressed by the professionalism of the people counting the votes in, in our elections. And I did see you there, and you did see that it was an incredibly close election. Um, and it just goes to prove that every vote does matter. All right, back to Broward. I want to uh, talk a little bit about something we heard during the State of the County Address uh, when outgoing Mayor Steve Geller had said that the Army Corps of Engineers' opinion on sea level rise, and I bring that up because sea level rise is not only a Broward issue, it's a Palm Beach, Broward, Miami-Dade, Monroe, South Florida, Florida as a whole, et cetera. So the Army Corps of Engineers, quote, says, we are in serious trouble, unquote. That's from the mayor, not firsthand. Is that what they say? What does that mean? And what's the plan? Dr. Jennifer Harado, who's one of the most well-respected environmental practitioners in, in you know, the country, 
Um, and I think that everyone is seeing, I mean, there's just more water. There seems to be more water, that be it king tides, whatever it is, from the sawgrass to the seagrass, there seems to be more water. Rain doesn't drain off as quickly. Groundwater seems to come up. We need to make sure that we're doing what we can to be as environmentally friendly as possible. And what is we're that? Doing, we're doing it on the county level with, um, you know, building buildings that are, you know, towards green and LEED certified. Uh, buses that we're buying are, are, are electric vehicles. We're trying on the county basis to make sure that we're uh, enacting ordinances and doing things to make sure that buildings and things that are built are built in the most environmentally friendly fashion possible. But what about the, the flooding part? Sea, sea level rise is inevitable and for whatever reason people believe, but the, the flooding, you're right, to your point, it is noticeable, especially now. Uh, there are municipalities who have flood plans. Um, if flooding is a serious problem, it is Broward going for, forward Excuse me, with some plan, some investiture, some infrastructure? What does that look like? Yes, everything that we do is built in a way that deals with, you know, flooding and sea level rise. As we're talking about new buildings, we're actually building them up a little bit higher. Um, we're going to have to look through different parts of the county and see where I know some of the municipalities are looking to raise seawalls. We're going to have to be there and, and be part of that. Um, we're going to have to work with the South Florida Water Management District the different water districts to make sure that we're doing what we can to fight what is eventually going to be a big issue. And it's going to be an issue that's going to lead to affordable housing challenges, building challenges, and transportation challenges. If we if if we're seeing this and we're seeing it now, it, it this we need to be prepared for this as we move forward into the future. Yeah. Uh, uh, Michael Udane, one final question here. It's inevitable, I guess. Uh, here you are, the new mayor of Broward County, a county of nearly two million people. I mean, a big, big place. Uh, and uh, in a sense, the most powerful person in Broward County government is the county administrator. Is it time for the mayor to be an executive mayor in Broward County? Well, there's been proposals that have been talked about, and, and, and I think that we'll see this again that will come soon, and will, co will come sooner rather than later, where we'll talk about sending out to the voters a potential charter amendment for an elected mayor. Um, we've talked about it over the last few years. We'll talk about it again. And at some point, it will be time again to let the voters have another say in this and let the voters decide whether they want to have a elected mayor that works with a county administrator just that somebody that can set the overall policy countywide on a longer term basis for yeah. the future of Broward County. We're seeing this with other 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 counties and other areas. They're, they seem to be able to have a much more consistent message yeah. over the years. Whereas when when we do the rotation every one year, it's it's sort sort of gets chopped up a little bit but all right mayor Udine, we're gonna looking at that and i think we'll look at that in the future yeah I, I beg your pardon it's great to speak with you this morning we wish you well over the next year and soon you will be in, here we hope in our studio for a live interview in the hot seat <laughs> thank you so much i look forward to it thank thanks you so much all right next giving thanks doesn't cost a thing the thanksgiving meal that does and that's where feeding south florida comes in the CEO is going to be with us next and why the services they provide are more important than ever.
As you know, we are fast approaching Thanksgiving, a holiday celebrated by families feasting on roast turkey and all the trimmings. The cost of that feast is up this year, making the work of food banks and distributions more important to more people. Paco Velez is president and CEO of Feeding South Florida, serving up Thanksgiving and all year round meals <laughs> to people in need for decades. And it is so nice to have you with us again. Paco, welcome back. We are glad to see you and uh, salute you for the work that you and your staff do at Feeding South Florida, one of your warehouses very close here to our station, uh, Local 10 in Pembroke Park. Uh, how many meals do you think by Thanksgiving, uh, how much food are you going to distribute? Well, first of all, thank you for having us on, on the show and uh, congratulations to Mayor Eugene uh, on his uh, uh, election to, to mayor. Uh, we're, we're looking at, uh, to serve almost 1 million individuals before Thanksgiving uh, comes around. Uh, it hasn't been easy. Uh, turkeys have been scarce uh, this time, but, uh, but we're looking to serve about uh, a, million, a million individuals across all of South Florida. And how does that compare to years past? Uh, Pre-pandemic, we were serving about 700,000 individuals. Uh, in the height of the pandemic, we were at uh, over 1.5 million. It has tapered off a little bit but still a lot of families who are struggling uh, with back payments and struggling to put food on the table to bring their families together for the holiday. Yeah, Paco, how do you source your food? I mean, we, we in fact, on our news last night, we saw pictures of volunteers handing out boxes that said feeding South Florida and, you know, happy people receiving uh, those foodstuffs. Uh, where do you get it? That's a great question. We've we've ordinarily relied on donations from from uh, our ag agriculture community. As you know, South Florida is, is a huge agricultural community from Palm Beach down to to Miami, South Miami Dade County. Uh, we work with distribution centers, retail outlets, uh, food drives. You name it, we get food from everywhere. However, since the uh, supply chain issues, uh, these donations have become a little scarce. So we've had to. Go out to the uh, to the to the market and actually start purchasing a lot of our product. Uh, we've recently uh, spent a little over a million dollars to to purchase items and bring them in for the holidays to ensure we had enough food for those families who need it. I actually was going to ask you that because last year when you were with us, it was actually after Thanksgiving, but COVID was really um, such a, a problematic issue for people who need to eat, need to buy, and now layered upon this is this inflation, you know, temporary or otherwise. Right now, we are in a time when the, the Thanksgiving meal is, and everything surrounding it, is so much more expensive because of those supply chain issues. So aside from buying extra food, I'm, are you having issues getting it, like so many? Thank you for bringing up the inflation piece, but yes, we actually had we ordered a lot of food and a lot of turkeys uh, back in September, and we found out last week, uh, a week and a half ago, that they were canceled. So we we had to figure out how we were going to bring in uh, thousands of turkeys. We were able to find a little over six thousand turkeys. As a matter of fact, one of them just showed up. Uh, one not one turkey, one tractor trailer load full of turkeys <laughs> showed up today, um, and uh, and we're looking to offload about two twenty five hundred to three thousand turkeys today. Wow. and have it ready for this next week and hopefully we get another truckload tomorrow but it's been extremely difficult there is there is a especially around poultry chicken um, and turkey it's been very difficult to to get those products in yeah uh paco let's ask about money i know that uh, 
people, good-hearted people, write checks, and uh, I think even our family has written a check to Feeding South Florida because we believe in you. But where does the money come from to feed a million people? So that money really comes from all over. We have a pretty, pretty uh, wonderful uh, support system, especially here in South Florida. No matter what's going on, whether it's a hurricane, a government shutdown, or, or this global pandemic, uh, South Florida has really come to the support of us and, and more importantly, the support of the families and being part of the solution to ensure families have food on the table. Um, I mentioned the turkeys. When we ordered them in, in September, they were just over a dollar a pound. Uh, when they got canceled, we were playing close to $2 a pound for those turkeys just because of, of the supply and demand. Uh, so we are, we're grateful for the support of our, of our corporations here in South Florida, individuals, and as you said, uh, uh, your, your, your family as well. <laughs> You're welcome. We, uh, you know, we cover here at Local 10, we cover on any given weekend so many good-hearted charities and people and volunteers staging these food giveaways and distributions, and, and we see how many families are in need. I, I wonder if you could talk about where, whether there is some sort of coordination or, or are, are all of these really well-intentioned groups and people in competition for just the same things that you're trying to get to help as well? That's a great question. This is one of the things that we're working on with our community is, is we, don't, we don't view uh, folks doing this kind of work as competition. There is a lot of duplication and we wanna, we wanna coordinate those efforts to, to, to better um, harness those resources and direct them where they, where they really need to go without duplicating some of these pieces, um, especially if multiple organizations are going to the same donors same agencies and ultimately the same families. We wanna make sure that we're doing right by, by our community, uh, both those who give and those who need assistance. Uh, no competition, but there, there are a lot of folks that are, that are, that are some are working together and some are working um, separately, but uh, we're looking to help coordinate a lot of that. Uh, similar to what Miami-Dade uh, County does in times of disaster, Feeding South Florida is the, the food and water lead for uh, the uh, Office of Emergency Management, or in times of disaster, the EOC. Yeah. Uh, Paco, if, uh, if I could, let me ask you to define a term which has become sort of the state-of-the-art term for what used to be just called hunger. It's called food insecurity. On your website, I look today, you say there are 257,000 people in Broward who are food insecure, 255,000 in Miami-Dade. What is food insecurity? So we, we stay away from hunger since hunger is more of a, a, a state of being at the time. Um, if you didn't have breakfast and, and you skip lunch then you're gonna be hungry, but it's not necessarily, you know exactly where to go to get food and you have the resources to get it. When you're food insecure, you just don't know where you're gonna get that next meal or how you're going to pay for that next meal. So you're starting to ration food. We see a lot of parents rationing their foods to their, to their kids, not to, to themselves, making sure that their kids have something they eat. So it's more of, a, of an uncertainty about where, you're, where and how you're gonna get your next meal. Crystal clear, Paco Velez serving a great need, feeding yeah. South Florida. We appreciate you being with us at Thanksgiving and always. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. All right, we'll be right back. to rewatch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, just scan this QR code with your phone and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section 
of local10.com. Great to have you with us this and hour. Okay. <laughs> Remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.